0: Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Last week, uh, the beginning of the week, I got my first sunburn of the season, and then today I woke up and had to put on a long sleeve shirt. Welcome to June in the Pacific Northwest, right? Um, we, uh, a couple weeks ago, started a series on the book of First Peter. Uh, there is a Second Peter as well, in case anybody's wondering, uh, that we'll also read together uh, in some weeks. But uh, First Peter is this letter that was written by one of Jesus' closest friends, uh, the Apostle Peter. Uh, you probably, if you've read the Gospels, you know him well. Uh, he was an impulsive man, a young man, uh, when he first met Jesus, a fisherman. Uh, n- never one to shy away from a fight. Uh, in fact, in one of the, the, the most memorable scenes of his time with Jesus, he, he decided he was going to keep Jesus from going to the cross with his sword, and he chopped a guy's ear off. So when we think of Peter, we think of somebody who uh, had a lot of passion and a lot of zeal. And uh, from, from the first moment we met him till when he writes this letter, he had been on a, an amazing journey of transformation. Uh, Peter, uh, after Jesus had left the earth, uh, went out, goes out of this upper room where he'd been waiting with his disciples, and the Holy Spirit come on them. And he goes out and he preaches this message, and three thousand people respond to it. So when Peter writes this letter, he writes now as an older man, uh, somebody who has been faithfully walking with Jesus and following the ways of Jesus for some time. And this letter is circulated to a number of churches, and and. And the the reality is, it's been circulating ever since. Uh, The church has has been reading this letter, has been wrestling with the truths of this letter for centuries. And so that's what we've been doing together just these last few weeks. Uh, So as we prepare to look at this next portion of scripture, this portion that Kinza just read, um, I just want to pray and I want to ask that the same Holy Spirit that worked in Peter, that started the church, that inspired these words, would meet us today where we're at, would would lead us into truth. So let's pray together. Father, we've, we come today, uh, people from diverse backgrounds, diverse stories, different places in our journey with you. Some of us are early on, and we're, we're that passionate, zealous Peter. Some of us are more mature, and we've been walking with you for, for many years. Wherever we are this morning, I pray that what we would hear today is not the words of Andrew Fouché, but the words of you, Lord that your truth would be elevated in our hearts, that we would would be aligned with it, Lord. And these ancient words that have been circulating from church to church, from country to country, from generation to generation, that they would be uh, more real in our hearts today, that they would be life-changing and life-giving for us. Would we be tethered to your truth this morning and nothing else? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Kinsey just read this uh, scripture passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 through 9. And I encourage you, if you brought your Bibles this morning, um, we're going to be kind of combing through this, this uh, passage a, a few times. You know, when I was, when I was younger, uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and I, and I loved to read books, um, especially like adventure books or mysteries or thrillers. And when I was pretty young, I don't know, maybe 10 years old, I remember coming out in the morning one morning, and my dad was reading the Bible. And I said to him, how many times have you read the Bible? He's like, oh, so many times. And I said, why? Because I typically, I read a book once and then I put it on the shelf. I'm done with it. The story's over. I said, why do you need to keep reading the story? And certainly the Bible is a story. It's a beautiful story of how God has interacted with his people and redeemed them and chosen them and pursued them. But the Bible is more than a story. The Bible's truth. And we all need to be reminded of truth. And so I remember my dad saying, every time I read the Bible, the, the truth of God affects me in a new way. Even the same things I've read over and over and over again. So this morning we're gonna look at this passage and we're gonna we're gonna kind of comb through it several times and really try to mine it for the truth and understand what it is saying to us today. And so one of the first things that that maybe sticks out to us as we look at this passage um, is we see some very specific illustrations. Maybe you heard these, and maybe you're looking at your, your Bible right now, and you see these words, that we are a living stone, a spiritual house, that we are chosen, that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that we are a special possession. What's being talked about here is... Our identity. So in this passage, the identity of the, who we are is being looked at from different facets of culture, different examples that would resonate, especially with the people that heard this in Jesus' time. But this is not just any identity. This is an identity that is uniquely and specifically given to those of us that have placed our faith in Jesus. And so that's what this passage this morning is pushing us into, It's pushing us into this multifaceted identity that we receive when we trust and believe in Jesus. Now, when we think about our identity, there's a, a few ways that our identity is shaped. Uh, first, our identity is shaped by our biology. Like, encoded in your DNA is things like your ethnicity, your preferences, your tastes, your natural gifts. And isn't it fascinating how we are unique, so unique in who we are in the way that God has created us biologically. I don't know if you've heard this before, but I love cilantro. Like cilantro on everything. I'll put on salad, on sandwiches, on, of course on tacos. Has to have cilantro. But for some people in uh, their, their biology, when they smell cilantro, it's one of the most repulsive smells ever. Is, anybody, is that true for anybody here? yeah You can, you can admit it. Nobody's going to judge you. I don't judge you for that. You literally, the same thing, but it smells so foul and different to you. And so when we think of our identity, uh, one of the major factors of how we view ourselves and who we are is encoded in us. But that's not the only thing that shapes our identity. Another thing that shapes our identity is our environment. Uh, I'm the oldest of six kids. My youngest sister is four, was 14 years uh, younger than me. So I was a teenager when she was born. Um, my, my dad was a, a hippie that got saved and born in Sacramento. My mom was from the Midwest. Her dad, her dad worked in a factory town. When they got to, together, there was a collision of cultures, Midwest and West Coast. And this environment that I grew up in shaped who I am today. It's shaped my identity. So our identity is, is shaped by our biology, but it's also shaped by our family and our friends and the culture that we grow up in. And then another thing that is key about our identity, what shapes our identity, is what we ultimately choose to believe about ourselves. Well, my work is my identity. My history, the things that I've done in the past, well, that's, that's who I am, for better or for worse. My sexuality, well, that's my primary identity. What we choose to believe about ourselves shapes our identity. So our identity is shaped by all these things, by our biology, by our environment, by what we choose to believe But the Bible shows us that there is one common influence that flows through all three of those things. And the influence on our identity, whether it's biology, environment, or what we choose to believe, the influence is sin. We we all are influenced by our own sin nature and the world that we were born into as it relates to how we see ourselves in the world. You know, as soon as Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie, which was really an offer of identity, you will be like God. As soon as Adam and Eve believed that, then sin itself became inherent to identity. It got passed down like a family curse to every person that would be born from then after it was introduced into the DNA of humanity. And so there's no escaping the effects of sin as they influence who we believe we are. And and this sin curse comes at us from two directions. It comes with us, from us within, like we're born into it. But it also comes at us from outside forces. The outside manifestation of sin are the things that are offered to us to shape our identity that we willingly agree with about ourselves. So maybe it was for you growing up, your parents said, man, you will never account for nothing. And you go, oh. I guess that is who I am. I'm not valuable. I'm not worth anything. I can't do these things. Maybe it was your friends that spoke those things into your identity. They said, oh, you're just like that. And so you go, oh, I am? Maybe, maybe that's true. And so you started to walk that out. In our current age, and this is, this is toxic for young people, but the primary um, engagement with identity, especially as it comes to sin, is happening through this device that we all have with us, our phone through YouTube and social media. Some of of the most popular videos for young people are about image. And so young people are being influenced. They think, man, I need to do these certain things to be valued. I need to look this certain way. And most parents, I'm going to be honest, are even oblivious to that. They don't know the messaging that their kids are absorbing about themselves. So, So sin... Influences our identity from the outside, all of these things, but also the the inside manifestation happens when we ourselves determine what is true about ourselves. We decide the most important things about our identity, and then we take those things and we make them idols in our lives. We make them on par with God. Things like work and family and sexual identity, and then we think that we are finding our true self in these things, when the opposite is happening, we are losing ourselves. And so we have a world that is confused about who they are. And if we think that the church is sheltered from this man, that's, that's further from the truth than, than anything else. As Christians, we need to press in and say, what does God's word say about who I am? And this is where the message of Jesus for us is such good news. Because Jesus exposes the lies that are coming at us and that are within us. And Jesus says, hey, I want to I free you from those. And so we know as believers that Jesus came down. He came into our space to, tra- to free us from the trap of sin. That causes us to get stuck in this loop of identity confusion. And he came, though, not just to save us from our sin. This is key wasn't just a one-time transaction. Jesus came not just to save us, but to literally transform us. So the Bible uses the phrase new life. We've been emancipated from sin. We have this new identity. 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So back to the text that Kinza just read. When you see these phrases, living stone, spiritual house, chosen, priesthood, holy nation, special possession, this is the language of identity. This is who God says that you are. But I'm going to be honest. Does this language resonate with our 21st century culture? Yeah, This is where we have to wrestle a little bit. And this is where we're reminded, man, this was written in the first century. This was written a long time ago. So we need to wade into it a little bit and ask ourselves, what, uh, how, what does this language mean in its original context? How does it affect us today? So we're going to do our best this morning to time travel just for a minute here and wade into the culture a bit. Because even though these are ancient illustrations, they are about us. So in this first These first couple of uh, identity statements we see in verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also are like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And so we see from the very beginning this identity and being a part of of Jesus' family, identifying with him means that we're going to be treated often like Jesus was treated. Jesus was what? He was rejected. When his time on earth, he was rejected by humans. But what? But he was chosen by God. And so when we identify with Jesus, we have these two realities that we are chosen by God, but there's going to be some hardship. There's going to be some hostility. And this is a theme in 1 Peter. Now, in our individualistic society, when we read these statements of identity, I typically read these as a, this is about me. But all of these statements of identity, they are all about us. You can't be a stone that is, one stone is not turned into a house, right? One stone is just a stone. But what Peter is saying here is, together we are being built into something Beautiful, a house for God to dwell in. And so verse 5 says that. And this idea is was radical then. Again, this is the first century context, because prior to Jesus' arrival, the way and the place that you worship Jesus was was in the temple. You had to go to a place. There were gatekeepers, the priests, and you had to, that was the only time and place where the, the Spirit of God dwelled, but in this new covenant, this new relationship with Jesus. We are the temple. Jesus is right here with us as we gather as a church. So we are living stones being built into a spiritual house. And we are to be a royal, a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Later on, verse 9, it uh, talks about this idea of, of a priesthood. And it says chosen or royal priesthood. Now, in the first century world, do you know how you became royal? You were born into it. The only way you were going to be royal in any way is if your dad or your mom were. You were the son of a king or you were born into some sort of privilege. There was no way to attain royalty apart from that. You could attain influence and riches and all those things, but to be royal, you had to be connected to the right family. And so when Peter says, you are a holy priesthood or a royal priesthood, you are chosen by God. This is a radical shift in thinking for the folks in the first century. Verse 9 says this thing, chosen people, royal priesthood. And the same thing was true of the priesthood. If you look in the Old Testament, the priesthood was designated by the family line. Levites were the priests. If you weren't a Levite, you weren't a priest. And so here Peter is saying, hey, you are connected to Jesus. You are being built up into a spiritual household. And you are a priest in that household. And you are, you are looked at as being royal. And so these are radical, radical identity statements. You are a holy nation. This would be radical too because it was understood that the Jewish people were the chosen people. They were the ones that Jesus came, would be made known in, that the promised Messiah would come through. But now what happens post-Jesus, for those that have placed their faith in him, that we all become a holy people, a holy nation. Now, that doesn't mean we're a perfect people, but it means that we're set apart. The uh, original uh, language, the Greek language, the word here is ethnos, which is where we get our word ethnic. So it's this idea of All peoples, all nations being brought together as a holy, a set-apart people. Not just the Jews, but everybody. And then lastly, we see this idea that we are God's special possession. Not because of who I am, but because of who I belong to. So you are a living stone, a spiritual house, chosen, priesthood, holy nation, special possession These are radical and powerful identity statements. Now we need to remember that the context that these things are being spoken in. Uh, We we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The Christian faith in the cities that this letter is distributed to was becoming increasingly unpopular. As Christians were going, wait, we can't just go with the flow of culture in all of these things. They started to stick out. And there was varying degrees of hostility toward the Christians. And so what Peter is reminding them of is don't take your cues and your identity from the culture. Be reminded of who you are. Holy, chosen, special. You've been rejected like Jesus, but that doesn't change who you are. One of my favorite phrases... Uh, uh, that makes me think about this is this phrase from author Joseph Bailey. He says, don't forget in the darkness what you learned in the light. So if you are beat down, if you are feeling low about yourself or, or if you're feeling overwhelmed by the culture, I want you to underline and highlight these identity statements from 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to put them on a post-it note. I want you to do whatever you have to do to remember who you are in Jesus no matter what you feel like, no matter what the culture says about Christians, God's word is true. So now after being reminded of who we are in Jesus, uh, there, there's kind of a brief detour in the writings here in 1 Peter chapter 2. There's, um, Peter kind of zooms out and he, he starts connecting who these people are, the, this early church, with some Old Testament prophecies. And some Old Testament phrases about who Jesus is. And how that influences who we are. And what we find is we find two very different responses to the message of Jesus. We'll read verses 6 through 8 again. He says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. We sang this song just a moment ago. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, Peter uh, kind of plays out this imagery of a cornerstone. Now, I'm not a builder, so this is one of those things I had to learn. But a cornerstone, in, especially in ancient architecture, was the very first stone that would be laid when you made a building. Everything else was, was made level and in alignment with that stone. It was key. It was foundational. And so Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the the. the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews says. He is our standard for truth and righteousness, all that is good. So when we are being built up into this house, we are living stones. We are connected to that cornerstone. So again, this is not an individualistic thing. This is an us thing. So Jesus is, for us, precious. He's valuable above everything else. If someone were to ask you, Well, why is Jesus important to you? How would you answer? Peter gives us some imagery, some language for that. And Peter's referencing a passage in Isaiah chapter 28. He says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. And so if somebody were to say, why do you believe in Jesus? What's so great about him? And Isaiah 28 is a great point of reference for us. And in Jesus, because he is the sure foundation, I never have to panic. I don't have to give in to anxiety. I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to worry. He is my foundation. Why is he my foundation? Well, because in Jesus, I know that all justice will be done. Like things that are being done to me right now, like I have, I'm powerless to stop them and to control them, but Jesus one day is going to deal with those things. So I don't have to panic. And, and when I feel like the world is going crazy and, and, and everybody's sinning and they're celebrating their sin, I don't have to panic. Jesus is the righteous plumb line. It is by him that everything else is measured. You know what a plumb line is? When I, when I was uh, in high school, I did a little bit of construction work as a laborer. And I remember the first time I saw a plumb line, uh, a guy I was working with was we were building a house. And they were trying to figure out the very beginning stages of that house in the corner of the wall. They needed to make sure it was straight up and down, Right. Because if, if you start to build a house and one wall is leaning one way and it's back the other way, as you build, boy, that thing is gonna be a mess. Well, a couple years ago, I, made my, I built my first chicken coop for my wife. Don't come look closely at that, okay? The, I thought it looked pretty sweet at the beginning and by the end I was like, why is this board, why does it have to be like this to connect? Yeah, I didn't get it. So a plumb line is a, a standard of measurement. Here's a, here's a picture of how a plumb line works you hang it from the top and you can determine if that wall is straight up and down or not. So for those of us who believe in Jesus, we have hope, not panic. And we have this because we belong to a completely just and righteous God. So to those who belong, Jesus is a cornerstone. But to those who don't belong, Jesus isn't a cornerstone that holds us fast. We're not connected to him. Instead, Jesus is a stumbling block. Jesus is, we could say, offensive. The the language of uh, Cornerstone is ancient to us, but in some ways it's also ancient to Peter. When the focus shifts from those who see Jesus as precious to those who see him as offensive, Peter then quotes Psalm 118, verse 22, almost verbatim. And this was written hundreds of years before Peter was ever born, anticipating how Jesus would be responded to. And while he's referencing this passage in the letter that he's writing, Peter's actually already quoted Psalm 118 earlier in Acts chapter 4, where he's brought before a bunch of religious folks, And they were saying, hey, we don't like what you're doing. Stop it. Why are you doing these things? And Peter goes, hey, I'm just doing what Jesus did. And if you're offended by it, take it up with him. Take it up with him. Not only that, but Jesus also quotes Psalm 118 about himself. Same thing as he was coming under attack from the messages that he was delivering. They stumble because they disobey the message which is also what they're destined for they stumble because they disobey the message when I was reading this passage earlier this week um, the first thing that comes came to mind I was thinking about the message of Jesus the teachings of Jesus the truth of God's word the first thing that came to mind as I was reading this is like oh that sounds familiar I've stumbled I've been offended by scripture. I always say when we're reading the Bible, especially in church, we all nod and smile. Hey, sounds good. Until we read something that we disagree with. And then we become Google theologians. Like, okay, somebody interpret this verse differently for me. Because this is too personal now. It's talking about my sin, not that guy's sin. And so if I'm honest, when I read God's word and when I'm attached to that foundation, my own sin becomes very apparent. And I don't like it. Yeah. It's a stumbling block for me. And so if you have read the words of Jesus, I mean, you've really read the words of Jesus, I guarantee that you've stumbled over them at times, that they've offended you. And I guarantee you've done what many of us have done. There's got to be a way around this. (laughs) What Jesus says is, no, there's no way around it. But if you connect with me, I'll tell you who you really are. I'll bring you real freedom. So Jesus is either the rock we build our lives on, or he's the one that causes us to see our sin and to wipe out. And to those who accept and obey Jesus, he frees us from the bondage of our sin. And his righteousness and his justice are life-changing. We never have to panic again about our sin. But for those who don't accept him as Savior, they will one day face him as judge. His perfect justice and his perfect righteousness. They will come to complete fulfillment. For those of us that are belong to the family, we know that his righteousness is given to us. But those who don't, who have rejected Jesus They don't have that assurance. So this is a warning, warning to everyone. Warning that we might be found with Jesus, that we might obey his message. And in the big picture, we're reminded that this was written to this church that was wrestling with these very same things. Figuring out how to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. So as we come through this passage, we see statements of identity. We see the choice we have to make, whether we believe Jesus and we want to be attached to him or whether we're going to reject him and we're going to continually trip over his righteousness and justice in our lives. And when we read this, when we come to this imagery of a holy priesthood that offers sacrifices to God, what this actually Um, brings to question for us is what is our purpose? What is the purpose of the church? If we're being built up into a spiritual household, if we are together, all of us, a priesthood, what does it mean to bring spiritual sacrifices to God? And so as we comb through this, we see two more things that I think are really important. And what those two things are is what the church is to be about. These are primary purposes of the church. First, we know that the church of Jesus is the people of Jesus. It's not a building. Now, this last week, we we started offering on Wednesdays uh, a time for remote workers to come into the building uh, and to work. And several of you took, took us up on that, and uh, it was pretty fun. We, we had lunch together, and, and we kind of promoted this as work from church. But really, it's work from the building that the church meets in, right? But that's just kind of cumbersome. We are the church. The people is the church. If this building, heaven forbid, were to be destroyed in a fire or earthquake tonight, we wouldn't be like, well, that's it. Guess church is done. Last year when we couldn't meet for some months, people were saying, I can't believe you shut down church. We're like, what? No, we didn't shut down. We're not meeting right now like we would like to, but church didn't shut down. The people are the church. The other thing that we're reminded of this passage is that there is no such thing as a church of one. It is not You are being, the church is being made into a living stone. It's stones. We're all being built up together. And the very essence of ecclesia, which is where we get this word church, is that church is a gathering, a gathering of holy people, people that have been saved by God. And so our identities as sons and daughters is given to us by Jesus. But it is worked out. It is formed. It is grown in the context of the church. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Another way you put this, being built up. And so one of the primary purposes of the church is for us to grow together in our faith. Another phrase for this is spiritual formation. Who I was 20 years ago is not who I am today, and that is due to me being a part of God's church and continuing to grow in my faith together. In Galatians 5, there's this list called the fruit of the Spirit. You may know it. Love, joy, peace, patience, uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can't practice the fruit of the Spirit without being part of the family of God. Like if you're like, I'm going to go live in a cave and I'm going to grow in self-control and peace and joy and love, like doing it by yourself is just not going to work out very well. Hebrews 10 says, don't give up meeting, but consider how you can encourage each other toward love and good deeds. So the church is the people. And the place our spiritual growth is supposed to happen is in the context of the community of Jesus' people. Now, I'm, I'm blessed that we've been able to do online stuff this last year to stay connected, hopefully to continue to be an encouragement to people. But this is where it's at with people with God's people gathering together. Now, there's a lot that could be said about this, and we've talked about this before in the past. But let me just say two things as we think about our spiritual growth together. If you have put your faith in Jesus, the church, his people, is the place he has chosen for you to grow in your faith. And we aren't perfect at all. We're a building in process but the church is Jesus' plan A, and there is no plan B. And Jesus, when he was speaking to Peter, he says, I'm going to build the church, and nothing is going to stand, not hell, not nothing is going to stand against the church. And God's, Jesus' promise has proven to be faithful. Now, we can talk about bad leadership. We can talk about toxic churches cultures but that hasn't stopped that should never stop us from obeying jesus and and actually we'll talk about that later in this very text peter will say the judgment of god begins with god's household so we don't minimize churches that are not following jesus well but as it relates to our spiritual growth the bible makes it clear god's plan is for it to happen in the church and so on, on that note, one of the things, I'm just going to vent here a little bit, I don't understand is when Christian people talk about church as an impersonal thing. Let me give you an example. If, if we were hanging out and, and you said to me, man, that, or no, I, let's say, I put it this way. If we're hanging out and I said to you, man, that, the Fouché family, they've got some issues with how they treat people. You'd be like, wait, aren't you a part of the Fouché family? Like, isn't that your family? Why would you be saying that if you are within them? If you were saying they have some areas to grow in, why would you be saying it, pointing that out as if you didn't belong to them? And I hear this too much in our culture, and typically it's, it's this impersonal thing. It's like, man, the, uh, the church better. And I'm like, are you not a part of the church? Like, is it not your family? Yes, we should point out those issues, but let's not talk about the church as if it's this ambiguous organization that's far over there. So we as a church, we need to take the things we hear about the church personally. If the church is having issues, then hey, let's speak to those issues, but let's be a part of the solution. Let's love the bride of Christ, imperfect as she is, like Christ loves us. So God does and use all sorts of situations and people and seasons of life to grow us, but the calling of God, the equipping of our faith, and the sending out into mission as the family of God happens together as we're being built up. So this is key for us to, to, to understand our formation happens. And again, it's not going to happen on Sunday morning alone. Community groups and, and serving together and being on mission together it's more than a Sunday experience. But we are to do it together. So the, the first thing we see is the church is being built up. And the second thing we see the church is to do, and this, we'll close with this, the church is to tell people about God. Have you heard that before? Nod to me if you have. Can't tell if anybody's smiling or frowning right now. The church, the mission of the church is to tell People about God. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Your identity has been changed. Tell people about it. Tell people what Jesus has done for you. So get this based on this privileged identity all of us together are to declare the praises of God our mission is not to fight the culture war and it's not to attack people who have different political views no we that is all of us together it is our job to tell people to tell the world about how the presence of God in our lives has changed us and out of that, if you're like, oh, man, are you talking about evangelism? Yeah, we're talking about evangelism, okay? <laughs> but we're not saying, like, you have, to, you have to have all the answers and know the apologetic. You need to go down the street right now. Like, you just need to be willing and ready to say, this is who God is. This is what he's done in my life. And I love Peter ends it by saying this. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, he's saying, this is, here's an idea of how you could do it. Here's an idea of how you can share. Another way we could phrase this is, once I had an identity, but I was confused about it. I was adrift, but now God spoke to me, and he changed my identity, and this is who I am. And because of that, uh, once I had no mercy in my life, I didn't even know the concept of mercy but now I have received mercy and I know what it looks like and it's covered all of my life and it's been given to me by this powerful and yet so loving and personal God. It's really not that difficult. So if you have placed your faith in Jesus, this is your identity. How many times do you need to be reminded of it? Every day. Every day. How many times do we need to read the truth of God's word every day? Because we're under attack, both from the lies that we believed within us and from those that have come at us and will continue to come at us. But no, church family, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, this is who you are. And the sobering thing is if you haven't, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, then you're going to continue to stumble. You're going to continue to wrestle with who you are. You're going to continue to say, well, maybe that thing will fulfill me. That identity statement will be true, and then I can feel that peace. And meanwhile, Jesus is saying, here I am. You don't have to wonder any longer. You don't have to stumble. Just believe in that's why we're all here, and I hope that's true for you. But if it's not, now is the time to believe Jesus, to stop tripping over him, but to say, okay, that's it. I'm ready to connect my life to yours, to believe this new identity. Would you stand with me as we, as we pray? Father, we thank you for your truth. And goodness, we need to hear it over and over and over again. We thank you that you've chosen us. We thank you that you've given us a place of privilege. And Lord, I ask this morning that out of that place of privilege, as your sons and your daughters, as a royal priesthood, as a holy people called together, out of that place, Father, that we would simply Declare who you are. Lord, even this morning, I pray that we be reminded of your goodness and your grace in our lives. We forget so easily. It becomes like a foggy memory. <laughs> Maybe something instead of a one-time occurrence, may your grace and your mercy be something we receive new every day. Maybe we, we be reminded, Lord God, of your great love for us. And Father, in just a few weeks, as we prepare to shift outside and to sing praises to you out on the lawn. I pray, Lord, that it, our Sunday gatherings will be a place of launching. That as we leave this place now and in the weeks to come, this, this once-a-week family reunion, Lord, that it would propel us into our workplaces, into our schools, into our families and neighborhoods with a renewed sense of hope with a deeper understanding of mercy. And Lord, with the boldness to just say, thank you, God, and I want to tell others about this. So Father, this morning as we end, we do give you the highest praise. Nothing else in this world satisfies like you do. No one else can speak the truth that you speak. No one else has the authority to proclaim who we really are other than you, because you made us. And so, Father, we give you all praise, all glory, and all honor. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to sermon audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.